Would you open your Bible with me this, this morning to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been going through the epistle of Ephesians. And it's divided into a few sections as we see that the first three chapters are to do with the wealth of the believer. Then chapters 4 and 5, the walk of the believer. And then chapter 6, the warfare of the believer. And it, it really speaks of the doctrinal aspect of our faith, and then the practical aspect of our faith. Not only doctrinally, but practically. How do we live our faith out? So here, what Paul is doing, he's teaching us how the body functions. We are the body of Christ. How do we function? How do we grow? The first six verses, he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, that you would walk worthy of that calling. What does it mean to walk worthy? A life of holiness. And that your life in a life that is worthy, walking worthy, would now produce and promote unity. So in the first six verses of chapter four, we saw the importance of unity, how to accomplish unity, and that we, walking worthy, ought to be living lives of humility, of patience, of of gentleness, of long-suffering. In fact, one of the key verses there in the first section of chapter 4 is verse 3 where it says that we would endeavor, that we would pursue, that we would study, we would work towards keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that we would maintain and protect the unity of the Spirit. So what are we called to? To walk worthy, and a life worthy means that the church is walking in unity. I want you to remember something this morning. Unity is the prerequisite to usefulness. Unity is the prerequisite to usefulness. So two weeks ago, the message was, let's walk together. Today, the message is, let's serve together. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, let's serve together right now? Let's serve together. I want you to know this. God uses a united church. God uses the church as it's united into one body. And notice this. The body is not called to isolation. The body, the body is called to fellowship. Not to isolation, but to fellowship. That means that after service, don't run out as fast as you can to your car. How many times do we do that? Oh, my goodness, they, eye contact with another Christian at church. I need to run. The church is not called to isolation. We're called to fellowship. We are here to serve. We're here to serve, and we are body builders. Some, you all just got nervous. I said that. Some got tired. But we're body builders. What does that mean? That we are here to build the body of Christ. We are here to build one another up in unity. So if we're walking worthy in unity, we're also serving with our gifts that God has called us in unity. You notice we're going to see three things in these five, six verses. 
this morning. Number one, the distribution of his gifts, the operation of his gifts, and the purpose of his gifts. You like taking notes? Would you write that down? The distribution of his gifts, the operation of his gifts, and the purpose of his gifts. It says this in Ephesians 4 verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Would you underline that? (laughs) According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all. All the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Could we read verse 12 together out loud? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you right now. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to not only walk together, but that we would know what it means to serve together. Lord, that we would live out a life as a church, one body, walking worthy. So we ask right now, Lord, in in, in your name, in Jesus' name, that you would speak to us. So that we can glorify you with the gifts that you've given us. And that the body here at Calvary Downey would be built spiritually. In Jesus' name, and together we said, amen. Now you notice here the distribution of his gifts beginning in verse 7. And he uses this word to begin this next section, a word that starts with but. And notice here he says, but to each one of us. Now he's already told us in the prior verses there in that section that we are one body that we have one spirit, that we all have one hope, that we are called to one calling. He speaks of one baptism, but, or however now, he brings now a distinct contrast. And what is the distinct contrast here? That there is diversity in the body of Christ. Yes, although there is unity of the spirit, there is also diversity in the body of Christ. You see, we're called to unity. We're not called to uniformity. And here he's talking about, and he's moving from what all Christians, all we have in common to how all we differ individually from one another. We're not all supposed to be the same. We're all different in the body of Christ. This is what makes the body so special. What makes the body so special is that in the unity that we are called to keep the unity of the Spirit, There is diversity in that unity. The problem is when we want everyone to be the same at church. Have you ever been frustrated at church and you say, you know, that person is so different than I am? Well, good, they're supposed to be. There's diversity in the body of Christ. Not everyone is supposed to be the same. Not everyone has the same gifts. There's a gift mixed in the body of Christ. And what are we to do? We ought to use the gifts that God has given us. And understand, this is what he's going to talk about here in this portion of Scripture, using those gifts for the glory of God. We are not called to have the same gifts. We're not called to bury our gifts. We're not called to sit on our gifts. 
We're called to use our gifts. Do you remember the parable of the talents where those stewards, what do they do? They sat on their gifts and the Lord said, you foolish servant, why didn't you use the gift that I gave you? We ought to use our gifts because we don't, when we don't use our gifts, notice what happened. The body suffers. The body suffers now. So there's diversity. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, write this down. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says, but one and the same spirit, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. There is one spirit that is working. There is one body that is taking place here in the church. And through that one spirit that is working in all these things, notice, he distributes to each one individually different spiritual gifts to be used. But notice how he begins the distribution of his gifts because he says this in verse seven, to each one of us, grace was given. I asked you to underline that portion because there, that word that Paul uses, that is his favorite word in scripture, there is used, grace. In fact, it means in the Greek, charis, grace. And in the New Testament, it's used about 156 times. Out of those 156 times the word grace is used, Paul is the one that's using it 110 times. He uses the word grace now. But why does he say here, but to each one of us, grace was given? Because grace is the basis of the gifts that we have received from God. Remember that today. Grace is the basis of the gifts that we've received from God. And how many of us today can praise God that to each one has received grace, that we've all received the grace of God? Amen. To each one, grace was given. So what does this mean? That, that they are free, unmerited gifts of God. That no one has earned or no one deserves these spiritual gifts. It is the free and unmerited giving of God that allows you to receive these gifts. To each one, grace was given. This is incredible here. Why? Because the Lord has provided everything that the body needs. Did you know that? Everything that we need, the Lord has provided. And he started with that, with grace. That is exactly what the body needs. The body needs grace so that the members of the body can function in harmony with one another. How is it that we can experience full and perfect unity? Because of grace. With grace, we can have fellowship and this koinonia, this intimacy that the Bible speaks of, that the Lord speaks of through grace. Without grace, if we step away from grace, notice what we have, division. But when we embrace grace, to each one grace was given, we are able to experience the koinonia, the intimacy, the perfect unity that the Bible speaks of. Notice, he's given us grace for harmony. He's also given us gifts so that the body can live, serve, and grow. So that the body can live, serve, and grow. I was in a meeting this week and something very praiseworthy was said. I heard it be said that the hallmark of Calvary Chapel of Downey and of Pastor Jeff Johnson has always been for 40, 50 years, grace and reconciliation. And that's what's kept the body of Christ here knit together, united in love. 
How many of us can praise God that that has been the hallmark of this ministry? Grace and reconciliation. You see, so many years of doing ministry, but what has kept the body together? Grace. What has kept the body together? Reconciliation. And to each one of us, grace was given. Now, it's important that we understand this so that we can be more diligent, so that we can develop and use those gifts, so that we can enjoy them in a humble way when we understand that God has given us our gifts because of his grace. Now, a gift without grace can be very harsh. If you try to use your spiritual gifts without the grace of God, they can be very abrasive, very now presumptuous in their effect to other people. That they have a very bad experience with you exercising your gifts because there is no grace. And they tend to create egotism without grace. And pride and carnality, that's what happened to the church of Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, they were all using their gifts, but without grace, and it turned out to carnality. But everywhere where you read in the New Testament where it's associated to spiritual gifts, and I want you to remember this and write this down, the gifts are always associated, and the gifts always promote three things. They always associate and promote themselves with love. They always promote themselves and associate unity. And finally, the glory of God. So when the gifts of God, the spiritual gifts, are used God's way, they're going to be associated with love, they're going to be associated with unity, and they're going to be for the glory of God. Now notice here, verse 7, what else does he say? According to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean? That to each one of us has been given grace? According to the measure of Christ's gift, that the more gifts that we have, notice, the more grace that we receive. In fact, the more gifts that we have received, the more grace is it that we need. So understand that the gifts that we possess spiritually, that we have received, they are because of God's unmerited favor. It's not because you're good. And in fact, let me tell you something. You're not good. And God has still given us those gifts. They've come through the generosity of his love. Because of the love of Christ, verse 7. Wasn't well, that the gospel there simply said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. God loved us and he has given to us. Christ's love has been demonstrated upon his church, the ecclesia of believers, in that he has given us gifts because of his favor. I want you to know three things as we look at verse 7. Number one, write this down. We are recipients of grace. We are recipients of grace. Here he has discussed the variety, the individuality within the unity of the Spirit. There's variety, there's individuality in the unity of the Spirit. Romans 12, verse 3 and 4 says this, For I say, through the grace given to me, we are recipients of grace. To everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Because you receive grace, don't think that it's because of you. It's God's favor on your life. For we have many members in one body, but all members 
do not have the same function. People are not going to be like you. They're going to be different. And each of us has received the grace of God. So before he explains the diversity, he has to say, because through the grace that is given to me by God, we are recipients of grace. But number two, we are stewards of gifts. We are recipients of grace, and then we're stewards of gifts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter told the church this, as each one has received a gift, and you've all received a gift here, minister it to one another. Serve one another with that gift. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Did you know that? Because you're a recipient of grace now, the Lord has allowed you to be a steward of a gift. And I pray today that you would know what those gifts are so that you can use them, that you can steward them for the glory of God, that you would not waste your gifts. Those gifts are from God, and they are expected now to be used for the glory of God and to build the body of Christ. We are stewards of those gifts. Ask yourself, what are you doing right now with the gift that God has given you? Are you stewarding it well? So we are recipients of grace. We're stewards of gifts. Number three, we are building the body of Christ. We are building the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it says this, but the manifestation of the Spirit, referring to the gifts, is given to each one. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to you in the gift that you possess, is given to each one for the profit of all. It's not so that you can hold on to that gift, that you can hide it. You can withhold it from the body of Christ. No, that gift has been given to you for what? For the profit, for the benefit, as a blessing to the entire church. And notice every spiritual believer, every believer that's walking with the Lord has at least one spiritual gift. No matter what kind of natural ability you think that you possess or you don't possess, God has given you a spiritual gift as a God-given ability to serve him to serve others through the Spirit in a way that Christ is glorified and other people are edified. You want to know when the church is using their gifts correctly? The church is using their gifts correctly. We are using our gifts correctly as the body. When Christ is being glorified and the body here is being edified, that is the purpose of the gifts, that Christ would be glorified and the body of Christ would be edified. The body of Christ would then grow. It would become stronger. That is why God has given us those gifts. In fact, verse 8, it says this, when speaking of the distribution of gifts, therefore he says, therefore he says. And there in verse 8, he is quoting Psalms 68, verse 18. It's a psalm of ascent, or it's a victory song of David. And he sees this as a fulfillment of Pentecost. When Jesus ascended to heaven there in exaltation, his spirit was poured upon the first believers, the first church, and empowered the Christians. And then as a byproduct of that, they received spiritual gifts. Now notice what he says this, speaking of the ascension of Christ on high. Verse 8, it says, when he ascended on high, Christ, he led a captivity captive and gave 
gives to men. A picture of the ascended Messiah triumphant over Satan. He ascended triumphant, victory over Satan, victory over the host of Satan and sin. They are ready to distribute spiritual gifts to his people. This is why he says, and he gave gifts to men or to his people. He is the giver of the gifts. After the ascension came the spiritual gifts through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Notice how he speaks this. But he also mentions there in verse 8, he led captivity captive. What does that mean, he led captivity captive? You see, in that time, it was a picture of a military conqueror leading his captives and sharing the spoil with his followers. In fact, if a king or a warrior had overthrown another kingdom, he would bring those captive of that kingdom and now file them in order, and they would now make a procession into their city, them all, they're captive in chains. And after the captives had walked in, following that king and that warrior that was a conqueror, the spoil of that which they had gained would follow them. So here he speaks of a, of a victorious king here, verse 8, who has the right to give gifts. Now notice, this is so awesome because in this case, the captives are not his enemies. The captives are his own. Who are the captives? We are the captives of Christ. We once were captive, we were held captive by sin. We once were held captive by Satan. But now we have been set free from the blood, by the blood of the lamb. We have liberty now, and now we're held captive by Christ. You see that here, how he describes it? Even death itself has been defeated. So we are those that are held captive now, and in his ascension, now we have received those gifts. Now, verse 9 and 10 is a commentary. If you notice there, verse 9 and 10 in your Bible, it should be in parentheses. Do you see those parentheses there? It's a commentary. And this is here where Paul is giving his application or his commentary regarding what the psalmist David had said, and he gives it messianic application. He gives it an application that describes or shows us who David is referring to, Jesus. That's what it means to have messianic application. In fact, notice how he breaks it up for us in verse 9. Now this he ascended. What does it mean? What does this mean? Well, it clearly means, notice verse 9, it clearly means that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. If he ascended, that means that he first, before ascending, he first had to descend. And where did he descend, the Messiah? Into the lower parts of the earth, into our lowly world. He's speaking here of the humiliation of Christ on the earth, his incarnation. What does the Bible tell us? That the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. So there he speaks in verse 9 of his suffering, of his death, of his resurrection, of the coming of Christ from heaven, from eternity, onto this world. Philippians 2 verse 7, Paul speaks of it again, the exaltation of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and then the exaltation of Christ there. He says this, but he made himself of no reputation. That was Jesus, the Messiah. He made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant. What does that mean? 
He came as a lowly servant and coming in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Speaks of the ministry of Christ. His descension to the lower parts of the earth. His now death, his resurrection. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. When we look at scripture and we read this in context, we see the Messianic application that here Paul is giving to this now psalm of victory where it describes Jesus now ascending in exaltation and then giving the body of Christ and believers gifts. Verse 10, notice what it says. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Who is it? It's Christ Jesus. The same one who humbled himself as a lowly servant is the very same one who ascended after the resurrection, high, far above, notice, the heavens. Speaking of his universal supremacy here, his exaltation in victory here. He is the one that was exalted in victory here so that he might fill all things. Why did he ascend? So that he might fill the entire universe with himself, with his redemptive plan, with his divine presence, with his power, and with his blessings. Notice how it begins here in regards to describing the giver of gifts as the ascended Christ. The gifts are given sovereignly. What does that mean? That they're given by God himself, who knows all things, who's in control of all things, who is over all things. The gifts are given by the ascended Christ to build his church. Why are they giving to build his church? He gives you a gift. Notice. And then he prepares a place and he opens the doors of a place where he wants you to use that gift. Not only does he give you a gift, he also opens a door for you to use that gift. And each of us were given a full gift mix for our unique ministry. Notice, you may be thinking, well, you have a gift. God's given you a unique ministry and a place to use that gift. Isn't it amazing to know that nothing and, and no one can change the gifts and the calling? They can't be changed by man. That a man doesn't have control over your gifts. That a person or a church doesn't have control over your calling. <laughs> That's so incredible. In Romans chapter 11, verse 29, it says this, For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. What does that mean? That when God has a plan for your life, he's given you a gift. He doesn't give you a gift. And then it says, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to give you a different gift now. Or you know, I had a calling on your life and I explained that calling to you, but now I'm going to change that calling. You know, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He doesn't change his mind. They're given to us sovereignly, a part of God's plan. God gives his gifts to us as a part of his plan for our lives. God gives his calling to us as a part of his plan for our lives. That is the distribution of his gifts. To each one, grace was given. Now notice this, the operation of his gifts in verse 11. What does he say? And he himself gave. He himself gave. These are the gifts that Christ gave to his church. Now he's going to explain the gifts and he brings it all in. He summarizes the gifts in one verse here. 
He explains the gifts by their assigned calling. So he's going to say, I'm going to explain the gift, and I'm going to explain to you the gift by the calling of that person that receives the gift. So he briefly outlines in only one verse. Think about how Paul does this here. The kind of spiritual leadership that Christ has given to his church. God has given his church, the body of believers, a special, specific spiritual leadership. And Christ possesses the authority, the sovereignty, notice him, to assign those spiritual gifts. It is the Father's will. This is why it says in verse 11, he himself gave. What does that mean? That they were given by divine institution. Divine institution, not by human invention. You can't make up, well, I have that gift. Or I need to be in that place. No, these are gifts are given at the discretion of Jesus. Would you remember that? That way you know that where you are called is at the discretion of Jesus as he's working through the Holy Spirit in the body of believers. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, it speaks of this. It says this, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. God gives you a gift, and then he puts you in the body where he wants you to be. How oftentimes, sometimes we get so frustrated, and we try to have the gift of someone else. Oh, Lord, I want their gift instead of mine. Or if I had that gift, or I was in that place, I'd be doing it better than them. <laughs> and no, that's not the purpose. They were given by divine institution now. So don't covet someone else's gift. Don't covet someone else's calling. God has a special place for you in the body of Christ. And you have to say, Lord, where do you want me? Where's my calling at? Ask yourself what your gifts are. And you would say, well, what are my gifts? What do you naturally want to do when it comes to serving and helping other people? Those are your gifts. What, what do you naturally go to when it comes to blessing other people? And notice, when it's a gift of the Spirit, other people are going to affirm that in your life. Where they're going to say, oh, you have the spiritual gift of helps. Or you have the spiritual gifts of administration. It is going to be affirmed by other people, yes, that's your spiritual gift, right? If you think you have the gift of singing, but no one's ever told you that you have the gift of singing, maybe you don't have the gift of singing. The spiritual gifts, notice this, are to bless the body of Christ. God gives you those gifts so that you bless the body of Christ. And other people notice those gifts. They're very evident and obvious in your life. It's so evident. They naturally come out of your life. Those are spiritual gifts, God-given ability through his spirit working in your life. Now, notice how he describes now the spiritual leadership of the gifts here. He says, verse 11, he gave some to be apostles. What were apostles to do? To guide the church in the way, the first century church in the way. Now, there's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a learner. But an apostle is a divinely appointed representative. It's different. An a divinely appointed representative. It means, apostle means a sent one. An apostle, a sent one. That's what an apostle means. It speaks of envoys or ambassadors now that Jesus appointed. In fact, didn't Jesus appoint those 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he appointed his 12 apostles. And they had the apostolic gift now 
like almost modern day missionaries and those that are gifted to raise up and send large numbers of people as maybe secondary apostles, right? But the Bible tells us of the signs of true apostleship. This is why we have to understand and, and pay attention. What are the signs of true apostleship? That's what the, Then no one can tell you or sway you. Well, in that church over there, they have an apostle. Notice what it says. The true signs of apostleship, number one, is that they would have seen Christ. And you find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. An apostle is one that has seen Christ. An apostle, number two, is an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Not only seen Christ before the crucifixion, but also seen Christ after the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 22. Do you remember when the disciples got together and they said, who can we pray? They casted lots to fill in the place of Judas Iscariot. And they casted lots and selected a man named Matthias. They had requisites here. They had now qualifications. And it said, he must have been with us from the beginning. And he had to have seen the resurrected Christ. But the third qualification of true apostleship is this, found in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, that they had been commissioned by Christ himself. Do you remember Paul was commissioned by Christ himself on that road to Damascus? And his name there was changed from Saul of Tarsus to Paul. He was commissioned. He had the signs of true apostleship. These are the signs of true apostleship. What did the apostles do? They laid the foundation of the church here on earth. They laid the foundation. Apostles laid the foundation. I remember one time we were out there street witnessing and evangelizing, and I was inviting someone to church and uh, just telling them about Christ and uh, just what we believe. And he said, well, what if I told you, and this is someone that was a churchgoer in the area, and he says, what if I told you that there is still an apostle here on earth, one more apostle here on earth, and he goes to my church? And I said, well, then I would tell you you're crazy. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) But I said, you would have to show me in Scripture how that's even possible. Because there are signs of true apostleship. Those 12 apostles, what do they do? They laid the foundation of the church here on earth. And you know what the Lord did? He he gave them a commission. In fact, we share that commission today as, as missionaries. In fact, do you remember in John chapter 20, Verse 21, where the disciples after the resurrection, they were in one room and the doors were shut because they were afraid. And Jesus said, well, I don't care if the doors are shut. I'm showing up. He went through the walls. Isn't that amazing that Jesus didn't need open doors? He went through the walls. And you know what happened? He shows up and he says, Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You see, that's such a beautiful commission that we share even in the apostles' foundation that was laid out. I also send you. This is why today, even when you walk out of the doors of this, church, this building here, you see out in, fr- in the doors right on top, you are now entering what? Your mission field. Because we're being sent out into the mission field. We're those secondary apostles, right? We're those missionaries now. But the apostles of the scripture are those that lay the foundation of the church. He gave some to be apostles, speaking of those that were there, the 12. But then he gave also some prophets. Now notice, what were the prophets to do? To guard what the church should know. To guard what the church would know. A prophet spoke in direct 
illumination of the Holy Spirit. In direct illumination of the Holy Spirit. He was a foreteller. Didn't we talk about that last Sunday when we spoke of Jeremiah? And a, a prophet is a foreteller of future events. He speaks of God's actions in the future. He's a, a messenger delivering a direct revelation of God before men. That's what a prophet does. Reveals now God's message now. And he does this before God's will was written in his word. There were those prophets in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, that before we had God's will and God's word revealed to us, and before it was written, the Lord shared his ways, his messages, through divine illumination, through the gift of prophecy. Not only are they foretellers, they're also forth-tellers. Especially in the New Testament, we see those that had the gift of prophecy spoke forth the truth and proclaim what was already in scriptures. That's why the prophetic gift is also the one where you see someone when they're preaching and they're speaking forth those things that are written in the word of God, right? That's the prophetic gift. They're speaking forth what is already proclaimed about God in his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, it says this, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. What is prophecy for? What are these gifts for? To edify others around, to exhort, speaks edification, speaks comfort. You see, today here, us as New Testament believers, we receive our message from God. We receive it today through spiritual knowledge. We receive it through the spiritual teaching of the word of God. And that's why when you, somebody tells you, you know what, I, I think I'm a prophet. I have a word from God from you. You test it through the word of God. Make sure that it aligns with scripture. Because if it doesn't align with scripture, you hear someone on TV, on the radio, on the media, someone tells you I have a prophetic gift and they give you a message, but that message doesn't align with the word of God, then that is not from the Lord. <laughs> that is from man. People oftentimes come to me and they say, you know what, pastor, I have something written down for you. I think it's a, it's a message from God for this church, for you and for this church, and you have to listen to this message. And I usually say, well, no, thank you. We're a nonprofit organization. You know, we ought to test everything with the word of God. And those prophets of the Old Testament, they spoke of divine illumination of those events that were already, now we didn't have in his written word, and the New Testament prophets spoke forth confirming those things that were written. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and then some to be evangelists. What is an evangelist? He shares with lost sinners. In fact, an evangelist is a bearer, that's what it means, a bearer of good news. A bearer of good news. He, he works at telling other people the good news of the gospel. In fact, an evangelist, you, could, you call those people soul winners. Because they're always sharing the love of Christ. They're always sharing the message of Jesus Christ. They're leading others, bringing them into the body of Christ, bringing them into unity. And they're presenting Christ's offer of free salvation through grace, through faith, or presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've even noticed someone that has the gift of evangelism, 
They share the good news. They share the gospel so effortlessly. <laughs> You're with him. They share it so effortlessly in, in, at the markets, at school, in line. They just share the gospel so effortlessly, and then people always get saved. <laughs> and you wonder, how in the world are people always getting saved? Well, they have the gift of evangelism. In fact, it's been said before, if the person has the gift of evangelism, notice, something happens when he preaches. People come to Christ. You always know when someone has the gift of evangelism because something happens when they share. People come to Christ. And they also train other believers to share their faith effectively. Isn't that what also Paul told Timothy? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. He says this, but you be watchful in all things. Timothy, there are going to be new teachings that are going to be coming in the last days. There's going to be false doctrine. But I want you to now be watchful, be vigilant of all things. Endure afflictions. Be willing to suffer, Timothy. Persevere, endure afflictions. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. All of us here, although that may not be our primary gift, evangelism, we also share the responsibility of evangelism. Why? Through the Great Commission. What did he say? Go therefore and make disciples. In order for a disciple to be born, he must be a believer first. (laughs) And in order for him to be a believer, there must be evangelists sharing. So we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. What does it mean? We're all called to share the gospel and the good news of Jesus. Now, isn't it Amazing how he lays out those leadership gifts. Notice this. The apostles laid the foundation, and then the evangelists built on it by preaching and winning the lost to Christ. Do you see that? The apostles laid the foundation of the church, and then what happens after? That the evangelists come and build on that foundation by leading other people to Christ. But notice as it describes there in verse 11, He gave himself some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, what's the difference there? That in every time it mentioned a gift, it said some. But here it says some pastors and teachers. It doesn't say some pastors and some teachers. It says some pastors and teachers. Why? Because it's one office here, a pastor-teacher, with now two ministries. Do you see that? It's one office with two ministries. The Greek here, the original Greek, it actually ties these two titles together here. Pastor, teacher. And what does it describe a pastor teacher as? A shepherd who leads. That's a pastor teacher. A shepherd who leads. You think about what the shepherd does for the sheep. If you think about what does a shepherd do for the sheep? That's exactly what the pastor does for the congregation. He protects the sheep. He provides for the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He nurtures. He cares for the people. He protects the people from their enemies. That's what a pastor does. He loves the people, and he has a heart for the flock. He's willing to sacrifice for them. He's willing to suffer for the sheep. In fact, uh, Peter gave a strong exhortation to the elders 
there, the Christians, the Jewish believers that were going under persecution. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says this to the elders, to the pastors, shepherd the flock of God. To the pastor teacher, shepherd the flock of God. Now, notice, this is an incredible exhortation because it reminds the pastor teacher that the flock doesn't belong to you. The flock belongs to who? To God. <laughs> They're God's people, which is among you serving as what? As overseers. What is an overseer? do? He oversees. He protects the flock. Not by compulsion. Not because someone forced you, but willingly from the heart. Not for dishonest gain. Not what you're going to receive from them, but eagerly. Not being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not lording over the people. See, the pastor should never intimidate the flock. And the people, notice this, are not here to serve the pastor. The pastor is here to serve the people. That's the way it works. The pastor is there to serve the people. The pastor is there to make the people feel safe so that they understand that they're being served by their shepherd. Now, not only is he a pastor, not only does he have a heart of a shepherd, notice this pastor teacher now, the heart of a shepherd is to what? To teach the sheep. He's a feeder of the flock now. That's the, that's the heart of the shepherd, to teach the people now. And how does he teach the people? He teaches them. How does he feed them? He feeds them the word of God. He nourishes them through the word of God. The sheep are nourished and dis discipled and disciplined and encouraged and built up through the teaching of the word of God. What does the teacher do? If a pastor has the calling to be a shepherd and has the teaching gift, what does he do? He expounds, he teaches, expounds great Bible truth. He develops consistent hermeneutics. What does that mean? He knows how to teach the word of God in a way that everyone can understand it. And the way it's explained now, he opens our eyes to see the wonders of scripture. That's what a teacher does. Paul told Timothy the very same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. What does he say? Be diligent, Timothy. Timothy, you're going to have to work hard if you're going to be a pastor. It's not going to be easy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God because it's your calling approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What does the pastor or teacher do? He rightly divides the word of truth so that the people are fed, they're nourished, and they can grow. You see, the pastor teacher's responsibility is not to give the people what they want. The pastor teacher's responsibility is to give the people what they need. And what do they need? The word of God. Chuck Smith would tell the pastors very often that the people in that sheepfold, in that flock that you serve, that the people in the place where you serve would be the best fed and the best loved people that they would be the best loved and the best fed people. I take that very personally, that the people here at Calvary Chapel Downey would be the best fed and best loved people through the teaching of the word of God. Because that only happens through God's love. That only happens through God's word. No amount of entertainment, no amount of good fellowship, or even other religious substitutes can take the place of this. There is nothing that we can do here at church that takes the place of this. When, when, when the pastor teaches, you know what happens? 
God speaks to his church through his word. And this is exactly what he's saying. He's explaining these gifts so that the believer discovers his gifts. Well, how do we discover our gifts? By fellowshipping with other Christians in the local assembly. That's how we discover our gifts. You see, the body of Christ is to function like a machine, like a body where every part is essential for getting the job done. Every single part is essential to get the job done. In fact, what does it say in Romans chapter 12? Would you write this down? Romans 12, verse 6, it says this, having then gifts, deferring according to the grace that is given to us. You have gifts because of the grace. They're different gifts, and you have them because of the grace that was given to us. Here, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, the same thing he said in Ephesians chapter 4 in a different way now. Therefore, having gifts different according to the grace that was given to us, let us Use them. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. But what does he say? Grace has been given to your recipient of grace, you're a steward of gift. You're building the body of Christ. Let us use them. It's very important that we understand this, that we would use the gifts that God has given us. Maybe today you came in and you said, you know what? I know that I have a gift, but I don't think they need my help, especially in a big church. It's so easy to think that they have all the needs covered. They don't need my help. Or you know what? I used to serve back in the day, but now we have football now we have the different clubs that we go to. You know, we get home late from work, so I can't really serve anymore. And you've been praying, Lord, is it my season to start serving again in the local church? Well, I want to give you your confirmation right now. Romans 12 says, let us use them. Yes, start serving the Lord at church because he's giving you a gift. Let us use them. We're not coming here just to sit, to gather, and to hear a message. We're here because the church is blessed. The church grows when we walk together and when we serve together. Now notice this. We saw the distribution of his gifts. We saw then also, as it speaks of the gifts of the Lord that he gives, we also saw not only how he distributes, but the operation of his gifts. And then finally, we're going to see the purpose of his gifts the distribution, the operation, and the purpose of his gifts. And here it's found in verse 12, the distribution. And we're going to read it very lightly that you would see it. And it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Why has the Lord given us gifts? To build one another up, to equip the saints. Who are the saints? The people. You're the saints. And it says that we would equip. Now, that word equip means to perfect, to make something fully ready. God has given these now offices, gifts, these callings, gifts, for the perfecting of the saints, to grow them into maturity. You see, it's not a matter of physical age, that maturity, that you now have many years, but it's a matter of spiritual maturity. And, he, and he's saying here, to equip, to perfect. It's almost that verse that you see in Matthew chapter 4, same Greek verse now or word 
where it says that, that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, what were they doing? They were mending their nets. That word mending is the word perfecting. They were preparing. They were making fully ready. It means to put right. It describes as setting a broken bone into place now, mending nets. So these gifts that he described in verse 11, these ministries work together to produce strong Christians, mended fit believers that are glorifying God. You see, you don't grow with awesome worship. Sometimes we think, if I go to that church, they have great worship, I think I'm going to grow, you know, spiritually. No, that's not how you grow. In fact, you can't worship a great way or in an intimate way if you don't know God's word. You can only grow as you're being taught the word of God. And he's saying, as you've learned the word of God, notice, what does it do to the saints? It equips them, perfects them, matures them for the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? The service. Ministry is acts of service so that you would get to do the work, that you would be involved, not to monopolize the ministry, not to hold the ministry back, but to invest and get involved. Did you know the statistics say that in the church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Why? Because oftentimes we hold back the gift that God has given us. And notice the pastor's job, as it described there in verse 11, the pastor teacher is to teach the people the word of God and that they would mature and be perfected, now equipped, mended, and then they would go out and do the work. How many times do you think, well, you know what? If if my church would only do this, or "I, I just wish the church would do that, Usually when you have an idea that God's put in your heart, guess who that person is? That's you. God's put it in your heart to do that. It's not the pastor's responsibility to do everything. It's not the pastor's responsibility to every every hospital call, every house call. It's not the pastor's responsibility to go out to lunch with you. (laughs) You know what it is? It's to equip the saints by the teaching of God's word so that you would do the work of the ministry and notice what happens the church then would be spiritually edified. This is how the church grows spiritually. To end verse 12, for the edifying of the body of Christ, so that the church would be strengthened. So that the church would be strengthened. These are three stages to spiritual growth presented here. It's called body life. What is it? Gifted leaders are responsible for equipping the saints. The well-equipped saints, these are the people here, are now to do the work of the ministry And what is the result? The body is being built. The body is being built. But I want to tell you something. It says to edify the body. Don't destroy the body. Protect the body of Christ. Build up the body of Christ. He has told us to endeavor now to keep the unity of the spirit. Protect the body of Christ. Protect the body of Christ. How do you protect the body of Christ? With love. In 1 Corinthians 12, he explains all the gifts. And at the end, he says, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. What's the more excellent way? Love. Would you say that together? What is it? Love. That is the more excellent way. 1 Peter 3, verse 9, he speaks of unity. He says, finally, you be of one mind. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be covetous or courteous. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil. When somebody does something to you, don't try to return evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling. Always in arguments. Everything's an argument. But on the contrary, a blessing, knowing that you were called to this, 
that you would inherit a blessing. God has not called you to instigate. God has not called you to provoke. God has called you to bless. To bless the body of Christ. The final goal of the gifts is love, unity, and the glory of God. Love, unity, and the glory of God. How many of us can praise God that God has given us a way to serve him? Love, unity, and the glory of God. Let's pray.